Living by the book is our theme this year. If you're visiting with us today for the first time, we have a theme at Northside, and we work on that all year, and hopefully that ties our lessons together a little bit, helps us remember things. But today, this week, or this year, we're talking about living by the book. Uh, We believe that the Bible is from God. We believe it's the Word of God, the actual Word of God. And it has infallible advice and guidance for us to live life by. Our first series was living eternally by the book. Instead of talking about living this life, we spent some time talking about living the eternal life. And we talked about believing in Jesus and repenting and confessing and being baptized and finishing the course uh, that the book lays out as the way to live eternal life. Uh, we believe it was pretty simple, uh, number of lessons, uh, hopefully everybody understood them. Uh, the question is, have we acted on them? And there may be some here still who understand them now and are thinking about it, but need to act on that so that they can live eternally. And we continue to pray that you will. Our second series, the one that we're involved in now, is called Living Confidently by the Book. We started that last week, and I mentioned that not everyone needs this series. Uh, We've got some confident livers by the book. Uh, And I got thinking when I said not everybody needs it, that doesn't mean it's not good for all of us. Uh, All of us need to uh, remember the joy of our salvation. And thinking about this may help us uh, do that, even though we are confident that we're living eternally. Uh, Our premise was that we ought to live confidently, but some folks don't. Uh, Some folks, when asked, are you saved? Are you going to heaven? Are you looking forward to that? Well, I sure hope so. Uh, I hope that uh, I'm ready when he comes. I hope that he comes at the right time when I'm ready. And we talked about all that and how that shouldn't be a concern because... We should be able to say with confidence, uh, yes, I am saved. Uh, Last week we looked at our verse, the part that we want to know about the Bible. Uh, John said in 1 John 5, 13, you may know that you have eternal life. Uh, We started there and got an understanding of that verse and why we should be able to say that, uh, why we should know that we have eternal life. Our verse today is from the passage that was just read to you, Romans 8 and paraphrased verse 39. Uh, Paul has a great list there. And just sitting there listening to Bob read that, I, I wish that I was preaching about that text today. Uh, I'm not preaching about the whole text. There's so much in there that that would be uh, great to spend our time looking at the confidence that we have in Christ. But we just want to take this one little part. And that's kind of what we're doing this year is taking little parts of uh, the book and knowing them, getting where we understand them, and then speaking and acting those parts of the book. So we're just going to take the last part of that great passage. And Paul says there's nothing nothing in all creation. Nothing. And he had made a list, a huge list, an amazing list. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. Last week we learned that we can say, I am saved. And today we add to that, I am saved because of the love of God. And I'm going to give you a couple other of the reasons in the next 
few weeks, but uh, by the time we're done, we ought to be able to live more confidently. If we really understand the love of God, I'd like to explain that to you this morning. I would like to be able to explain the love of God to you this morning, uh, but I can't do that. Uh, in fact, I know when I start, this sermon's going to be a failure. When I get done, hopefully you'll understand the love of God a little better, but you won't understand the love of God. It's just beyond our understanding. It's beyond our comprehension. But even to explain it to you at a certain level, just so you understand some of it, uh, if I just started out talking about the love of God, we'd be, we'd be confused. We'd be way too confused to really understand. We've got to speak the same language. And you're sitting there thinking, well, we do speak the same language. Well, no, not on this. Uh, we are very confused, especially in America, about love, about what love means. So let's work on that just a little bit first, and if we can get to speaking the same language, then maybe we can talk about the love of God. Uh, to illustrate what our problem would be, let's suppose that you are new to Kansas. In fact, let's suppose that you're new to the English language. You've come to a foreign country, you've come to Wichita, Kansas, uh, you meet me, and you're not good at the language yet. And But you want to communicate with me, you want to know something about me, so you ask in broken English, you ask me about myself. Steve, tell me about yourself. What, what kind of things do you enjoy? And I might try to explain it to you and say, well, I love my wife and grandchildren. I might tell you I love family camp. I love Northside kids. I love 1967 GTOs. I love Kansas sunsets. I love Jennifer Nettles. I love America. I love the 4th of July. I love an old cock pheasant busting out of the grass. I love a properly smoked brisket. I love the song that we sang before the lesson. Now remember, you're new to the language. And you just heard me say all those things. Now what's going through your mind? You're thinking, hold it now. He said the same word, but he used it for his wife and cars and food and songs. And some of you are saying he used it for a woman that's not his wife. How's that work? What is that about? He loves all those things. And that makes no sense to you if you don't speak the same language, right? Okay, I do love all those things, but you got to speak the right language. And we in the English language don't do very well at that. The Greeks did a whole lot better than us. The Greeks understood better than us anyway. They had four different words for love. We just got one. 
Now, through practice, when you heard me say that, you interpreted it a little different way. But if you were new to the language, you couldn't. Well, the Greeks had four different words, and some languages have even more than four. But since the New Testament was written in Greek, we've got to understand these words. There's agape, there's storge, there's phileo or philia, and there's eros. And if I was speaking in Greek... When I gave you my list, I would have used different words for each one of those loves. Now, let's try to learn these loves. Let's start with Eros, and I'm going to come all the way down here because Eros is kind of the lowest level in one sense. Now, when you see Eros, first thing you think of is erotic. And that's one thing that comes out of Eros love. That's our first thought, romantic love, that kind of thing we think about. But it's more than that. It's actually to do with the appetite. It's to do what appeals to us, our senses. What looks good, sounds good, tastes good, feels good, all of those kind of things. The the Greeks would say that's Eros love. So when you eros something, that means it appeals to your senses. Now, it's a lot more than human relationships. It's what music you like, what art you like, what foods you like, all of those things. But in human relationships, we can see the problem with eros love. In human relationships, if it's based on eros love, that's how you fall in love and fall out of love. A lot of people fall in love, and some of them, if they live in Hollywood anyway, they get married the next day. And a couple of weeks later, what happens? They get divorced because they fall out of love. And the Greeks, when they're talking about that, would say eros every time. Because she appealed to me today. She appealed to me so much, I married her the next day. And after a couple of weeks with her, she wasn't so appealing anymore. That's the way Eros love works. Now, the, the ta- our tastes change. You probably like some music today that you didn't love in the past and vice versa. Not only do our tastes change, but the objects of our love change. If, if we're only with a person because they're beautiful or they're handsome... And that appeals to us. Guess what? They're not going to stay beautiful or handsome in the Eros sense. So that's the lowest level. Now, the Greeks had another word that was, let's say, a little higher level of love. Phileo. And that has to do with friendship. That has to do with uh, uh, brotherly love. Philadelphia, that's where that word came from. It's the city of brotherly love. Now, phileo, when you phileo someone, it's an affection because you've got something in common. Something about them appeals to you, not arrows way, not your senses, but you've got a connection. Your friends. Now, who are you friends with? Who do you become friends with? Usually somebody that you've got something in common with. In a dating relationship, you invite a person out or you agree to go on a date with someone because of arrows. 
They appeal to you. They, they look good. They sound good. You, you think this might work. And what happens on the first date? You find out a little bit about them. You find out if you got anything in common or not. You find out if you might be friends. You move up to the phileo level. Or you don't. You say, I don't have anything in common with them. I don't know. They're pretty, but boy, I don't like them. Okay? The Greeks would use different words for that, and we'd make sense of it. Okay? Phileo, you can find in the New Testament. John was the apostle who Jesus phileoed. They were best friends. They had a lot in common for some reason. They got along better than Jesus and the other apostles. You're saying, hold it, didn't Jesus love all the apostles? Yeah, that's another word. But as far as friendship, John was his favorite. They were best friends. Now, arrows, you can't find that in the New Testament. The word's not in there. The Bible just doesn't talk about that kind of love. It does talk about phileo. It talks about another, let's say, step up kind of love. Uh, another step up is storge. Okay? Storge is a family kind of love. It's a natural love. It's, if you're born into somebody's family, you storge them. You love them. Especially parents and children. Okay? Parents' love for their children is a storge love. Okay, uh, that's why Second Timothy three one through five talks about the last days, and it says things are going to get so bad, people are going to be so evil that they are going to be unloving, and they use storge. It's a storge, not storge. Really means without natural affection. You see in the news where some mother killed her children, you say that's not natural. Okay? Mothers are supposed to love their children. Mother Storge, because they're the mother, because they're her children, she loves them. Okay? You love your children, you love your grandchildren because they are. Now, I know some of us have perfect grandchildren, I know that. But you still love them because. And other parents and grandparents notice that. Okay? You see those three different kinds? Eros is a maybe kind of love. If you keep looking good, if you keep being attractive to me, then I'll love you. Phileo is a, a if. Uh, yeah, Eros is maybe. Phileo is if. If you do the things that make us friends, like. A, a team, a bowling team, or a shooting team, or something like that, is based on phileo love. If you get somebody on the team that doesn't ever show up, that doesn't do his job, that doesn't play well, does he stay your friend? No, no. He, if he does his part, he stays your friend. Yeah. Speaking of that if thing, how many of you had a best friend forever in junior high? Are you still best friends forever? Probably not. But because you grew apart, you changed, you don't have that mutual attraction anymore. Okay? You have friends in elementary school, they're your best friends, you're going to be friends forever, right? Till the end of your life. 
Get out of elementary school. You don't see them again. You don't have anything in common. You're different. That's the phileo friendship. So there's a maybe and there's an if and there's a because kind of love. Now, if you understand those three, we could go back through my list and it all makes sense to you people that are new to the English language. If I spoke it in that language, you would say, aha, I understand. He loves a certain kind of car and he loves a certain musician because... Of arrows. They, they appeal to him. They're, they're attractive. He, his senses like them for some reason. My senses are different, but I understand why he loves them. And when he talked about his friends and friendship, I understand that's a different kind of love. And when he talked about his family, I understand that's a different kind of love. So now that we're speaking the same language, we finally get to agape. And agape is so different from all the others that it's in a class by itself. In fact, the Greek word agape was in the Greek language. It existed, but nobody really used it. It's a very strange word. If you go back before the New Testament times and look at all the Greek literature and ask Greek scholars and all that what agape meant, they're not really sure. It was just kind of an unused word. I don't know how God works those things out, but he does. So when the Holy Spirit got ready to write the New Testament, he took that word for love and he used it for God's love. And then he defined it in the New Testament. He revealed what God's love is in the New Testament. That's why I put on your handout, it is revealed and defined in Scripture. You can't go to a Greek lexicon from the first century before the New Testament and find out what agape means. But in the New Testament, it tells us this is love. This is God's love. God is love. And every time you find that word agape, you're learning something about it. And it's not like eros or phileo or storge. It's completely different. It doesn't have to do with attraction or friendship or family relationship. It's not a maybe or an if or a because. It's a decision. It's a decision of the will. God said, I love people. The New Testament says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He agaped us. Agape love looks for the best for the other person. You read 1 Corinthians 13, there's the definition. Paul said, here's what agape is like. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love doesn't keep account of wrongs. He goes on and on. We read that at every wedding. Because that's defining the kind of love that will keep couples together. Eros love won't keep you together. Phileo might. Family doesn't come into it. But agape love will keep you together. Because it is a decision of each person that I want the best for the other person. You got to give up selfishness. To have agape love. And so when it defines agape love in the New Testament, it's talking about God's love. And 
It's different than all the other three. Okay, now we got our language kind of figured out. Let's talk about the love of God a little bit now. First of all, the love of God originated with him. It was first. I put 1 John 4, 9 and 10 down for you. This is how John explained it. He said, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is how you understand love. It didn't have anything to do with us. It came from him. He loved us first. We may love him now. Not near to the level that he loves us, but we love him. Read a story about a man that was getting close to his deathbed, and he got to thinking about how much he loved God, and he decided he didn't love him as much as he ought to. And he was worried about that. That's so why he talked to another gentleman about it and expressed that to him, and here's how the friend explained it to him. He said, when I go home from here, I expect to take my baby on my knee. I'm going to look into her sweet eyes, listen to her charming prattle, and tired as I am, her presence will rest me. For I love that child with unutterable tenderness. But she loves me little. If my heart were breaking, it would not disturb her sleep. If my body were racked with pain, it would not interrupt her play. If I were dead, she would forget me in a few days. Besides this, she has never brought me a penny, but was a constant expense to me. I'm not rich, but there's not enough money in the world to buy my baby. Why is that? Does she love me or do I love her? Do I withhold my love until I know she loves me? Am I waiting for her to do something worthy of my love before extending it? He's explaining it pretty well. That God's love came first. And keep going back to why we're talking about this. Why can we say I am saved? Is it because I love God enough? No, it's because he loves me. We said over and over last week, it's not because we're good enough or right enough. It's because he loves me. Secondly, God's love is undeserved and unconditional. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1. He said, I'm the least of the apostles. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle. I persecuted the church of God. There's some folks in this room that have done some bad things, but I don't think anybody in here has killed Christians. Paul had. And Paul still said, I'm saved. I'm saved because of the love of God. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle. Because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. God loves me. It's undeserved. It's unconditional. Romans 8, that's what that's all about. And I put part of it on your handout for you. Paul said, I'm convinced that none of this, 
can separate us from the love of God because the love of God is unconditional. You know why Jesus told parables? He wanted to explain things to people that were hard for them to understand. So one day he wanted to explain to them the love of God. It was like me. He knew I can't really get them to understand it, but I want to get them closer. And so he made up a story and told them. We call the story the prodigal son. I don't think Jesus called it that. I think he called it the loving father. But that was his story to try to show them what the love of God was like. And you know what he did? He made up the most preposterous, over-the-top story that anybody could make up. Well, in that day. I've read modern-day adaptations of it where people try to make it sound like that in today's times, and it, it gets your attention. But in those days, I, in fact, I imagine as he told the story, the crowd was not just silent. I bet the crowd was gasping every once in a while. Because that's how far out this story is. Jesus said there was a father who had two sons. And the younger son came to the father and demanded his half of the inheritance. The crowd went, (gasps) Because in that patriarchal society, for a younger son to demand his inheritance was ridiculous. Over-the-top crazy. I want my half of the inheritance, and I'm going to go off to a foreign land. The crowd is sitting there saying, younger son asked me for that. He's going to a foreign land, all right. You know, but not with any of my money. Not going to happen. And then Jesus said, the guy gave it to him, and he takes off to this foreign land, and he makes bad choices. He picks bad friends. He starts bad practices. He does everything wrong that his daddy ever taught him to do right. And the crowd goes, I can't believe it. This kid's going to get his. And Jesus says, it got so bad after he lost all of his daddy's inheritance and did all these wrong things with all these wrong people and got all these bad habits, he ended up in the pig pen. The pig pen. Jewish people aren't going for this now. That's the last place you go. But that's where the boy went. He's in the pig pen. He's eating the same thing the pigs are eating. And then he decides, I'm going to go home to daddy. (gasps) Go home to the father? In this condition? No way. And Jesus just keeps rolling. And he says he goes home. And the crowd's thinking, all right, that'll straighten this out. There'll be some, there'll be some dealings here now. He'll straighten this boy out. And Jesus says, Daddy ran, ran down the road to meet him. Daddy threw his arms out. He said, welcome home. And the crowd says, that can't be. That, that is not comprehensible. Jesus said, yeah, that's what the love of God is like. It's undeserved. It's unconditional. But that's the way it is. Third, the love of God is constant. Romans 5 says, while 
we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You think you're having a bad day? You think you're having a bad week? You think, because of the things I've done, because of the thoughts I've had, because of the way things are going, I don't think God loves me this week. Go back and think. He loved you while you were still sinner, before you knew about him. He loved you then. If he loved you then, he loves you now. I put a little fill-in-the-blanks test on your handout for you. I want you to make a list of, of things that you can do to make God love you more. And when you're done with that list, make a list of things you can do to make God love you less. Now, I gave you three blanks. You may need more. You write them down. You fill them in. You bring them to me after the service. If you have anything written in there, you're wrong. There is nothing. There's absolutely nothing. And that, that's just so weird to us. We think that can't be right. Because we're thinking arrows, phileo, uh, storge. And in those, you can make a long list. That's what's in our head. That's what's wrong with us. We're not talking agape. If you're talking agape, the love of God, there is nothing you can do to make him love you more. There's nothing you can do to make him love you less. That's the love of God. Fourth, the love of God will last. Paul said, I know who I believed. I'm convinced that he's able. He's able to guard what I've entrusted to him for that day. What would you entrust to him, Paul? Your salvation. Paul said, I used to think I was good enough. I used to think I was right enough. I figured out that was wrong. I I wasn't good enough. I wasn't right enough. So I just trusted in him. I believed in Jesus. I repented. I confessed. I was baptized. I'm finishing the course. But I know that he can guard that. I've given it to him. Who's going to get me to heaven? Jesus. The love of God. The grace of God, the blood of Jesus, that's what's going to get us there. And Paul says, it's in good hands. I'm covered. I am saved because of the love of God. That's just a few things about the love of God. But but I hope our verse means more now. Does it mean more when Paul said this? Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God. You're talking arrows, love, phileo, love, story. There's things that can separate that. There are things in creation that can separate those kinds of loves. But not the love of God. Nothing in all creation. Now, what will you do with all of this? That's where we come down on every lesson. What will you do with what we've talked about? You know it now. You know, if you've done the things we talked about in the first series, that you can say, I am saved. And you can say it because of the love of God. You know a little more about the love of God, maybe, than you did when you came in. Secondly, you can speak it. That's our practice in this series. If we're going to live by the book, 
You can say, God loves me. I'm saved because God loves me. I'm not saved because I'm good enough or right enough or love God enough. I'm saved because he loves me. Now, the important part is to act on it. Every once in a while I'll see a baby. Somebody will be carrying a baby around. That baby will just be smiling and grinning and just so happy. One thing I often say is, I know somebody loves you. You're a happy baby because somebody loves you. I know how you're treated at home. Somebody loves you. Don't you think Christians ought to look like somebody loves us? Act like somebody loves us? It ought to make a difference in our life. We ought to just think that way. I am saved because God loves me. And rest, you may not understand the love of God, but I understand it enough to understand how amazing that is. Changes the way I think about things. I was visiting with a 12-year-old girl one time a number of years ago. She was a confident young lady. And she was telling me about how she had won the spelling bee and how she had done this and how she had participated in that and her accomplishments in that. And when she got done or took a breath for a while, I said, you sound like a pretty special girl. You sound like a pretty special girl. In fact, if your folks ever decided to get rid of you, I'd take you. You know what her reaction was? She gasped. (laughs) She said, well, that would never happen. They love me. That ought to be our reaction. On a bad day, on a down day, on a down week. Are you saved? Well, yes, I'm saved. God loves me. Next week. One more reason about living confidently. We'll talk about that next week. Been a million stories told about the love of God. Trying to illustrate the love of God. None of them do it very well. Uh, The story of the cross does real well. But everything that man has made up gets part of it maybe, but really can't explain the love of God. Abby Blair told a story that's one of my favorites because it gets pretty close to some of the aspects of the love of God. Abby Blair worked at an adoption agency. It was her job to find homes for children, and she tells the story about Freddie. She said the first time she saw Freddie, she was struck with how beautiful he was and his thick, dark curls and his dark eyes, and she, he was with his foster mother. Abby was new at the agency, so she was interviewing this mother. And the mother said, he's really smart. He's 10 months old now, and he, he can walk real good, and he's starting to try to talk. Could you find a place for him? And Abby Blair said, well, I'll try. But she knew deep in her heart that it was going to be hard. You, you see, it's hard to place a 10-month-old boy even with brown eyes and dark brown hair and fair skin, if he's been born without arms. Freddie had been given up by his natural mother and for adoption, and he was ready for adoption, but Abby didn't know if anybody was ready for him because she had 
become used to the fact that couple after couple came in and they wanted somebody like them. Somebody that looked like them. And they always wanted one with no medical problems. And so summer turned into fall and Freddie passed his first birthday and there was still no family for him. Then one day Abby Blair said, I went to visit, interview this family called the Pearsons, Francis and Edwin Pearson. She was 41, he was 45. She was a housewife, he was a truck driver. They lived in a tiny house and they were sitting on this couch and they looked scared to death. They were holding hands and they told me, we've been married for 18 years. Good years. But something's missing. The room's too neat. (laughs) And we tried to have children. We we had all the exams and all the tests and we could nothing happen. And we thought about adoption, but we lived in this little apartment and we knew we couldn't get a child. So we saved and we finally bought this house and now we thought... Maybe there's a possibility. So we wanted to know, can we adopt? And we wondered if we could choose a boy. My husband would like a boy. Abby Blair said, well, we'll we'll try. What, What kind of child were you thinking about? Francis said, oh, we'd like to have an athletic one. Because my husband, he's really athletic, and he's good at football, and he's good at baseball. And if we could have somebody like that, he'd be good for the boy. How long do you think it would take? Do you have any little boys that we could have? We can't give him much. We don't have many, much money saved up, but we got a lot of love saved up. So Abby Blair said, well, there is one. He's 13 months old. And she took her picture out of Freddie. She handed it across to the Pearsons. And as she handed it to them, she said, he was born without arms. The Pearsons took the picture and looked at it for quite a while. And then looked at each other and said, kickball. (laughs) He can play kickball. What do you need arms for? He's got a good head. That'll work. And we can start saving for college. And Abby Blair said, you might want to see him. I said, when could we have him? She said, you really think you might want him? They said, might. Might. We want him. He's who we've been waiting for. So Abby Blair went home to make all the preparations and fill out the paperwork and it was Christmas time by the time everything was done. She dressed Freddie up in his white suit with some holly berries on the collar and she told him before he went into the room where the Pearsons were, he said, you're going home. He said, you're a good boy and you're going home. And Freddie said, going home. She carried him upstairs to where the Pearsons were waiting She opened the door and she set Freddie down. She said Freddie stood there rocking and gazing at Francis and Edwin Pearson. Then Mr. Pearson knelt on the ground. He threw out his arms. He said, Freddie, come to Daddy. 
Brady looked back at Abby Blair and then turned and walked toward Edwin. And both parents reached out their arms and gathered him in. If you've never belonged to God, God wants to adopt you. It doesn't have anything to do with whether you're good enough or right enough or love him enough. Because he loves you. He loves the weak. He loves the ungodly. He loves the sinners. He loves us when we were his enemies. How do I know all that? The, the Bible tells me so. We're, we're living by the book this year. In Jesus' story, that was it. When you've done everything wrong, you can do wrong. The father still holds out his arms and says, come to daddy. Even if you've run away from your father's love. Some folks do that. If you've run away from your father's love, it doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. He wants you to come home. In fact, he says he'll run to meet you. I said I love that song that we sang before the sermon. We're going to sing it after the sermon too. I think it's it's my favorite song. I love it. I think that third verse is the best verse ever written in gospel song. It describes that if we all were scribes and we all had pens and the ocean was full of ink, we couldn't write about the love of God. Couldn't get it done. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen could ever tell. Let's sing that great hymn, and if you need to come this morning, come to the love of God.